Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. intro there for you guys on Conspiranormal. I messed up the first time. <laughs> Alright, what is up? We are in the new studio. We've dubbed it the Hermitage Hills Bonas Studio here in beautiful That's Hermitage, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> what would you call it? Hermitage Hills or the Bonas? I mean, it is. Bonas. You want to call it the Bonas? The Bonas Studio, man! <laughs> Oh, it's been a little while since uh, we met, and uh, how's it going, Luke? Pretty good, man. I'm, I'm in a coma from yesterday. Yeah? <laughs> Tell everybody about yesterday, what it is that you did. Um, I think it's you know kind of pertinent to what we talk about. Well, in the, uh, in the morning, I went to a protest in uh, Nashville uh, against Monsanto and GMOs, and we got the message out to a lot of people. There's a bunch of uh, hippie chicks. I think half the crowd really didn't, didn't know entirely what was going on uh they, they knew they knew the the primary reasons that we were there but they didn't really like nobody in the crowd even mentioned yeah. pcbs contaminating the environment at all and they, it was just all just purely gmos that they were focused so on talking about monsanto and stuff yeah. like that it was primarily so what, what exactly it was like a protest organized against monsanto yeah. it, it was just a march across town we started off at riverfront park and we uh we marched down to bicentennial park and we had people stopping all over the yeah. road asking. I was on camera. You know how I choke and like stutter sometimes just on this show. And then when a camera's in my face, I'm just like, uh, 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 uh. uh. <laughs> so they, they put you on the news then? Um, not, not the news. It was just, I guess, someone's, you know, like a document, private documentary, a documentary on YouTube or something? or something like that. Well, yeah. what did you say to the people that you were talking to? Um, they just, they didn't know anything about GMO. And, you know, when they see us marching through, they're like, you know, what is that? But, uh, some signs 
clarify it. They they said like uh, don't don't uh, manipulate our foods. You know, leave, stay organic yeah. and stuff like that. But for the most part, people don't know what we were talking about. And for for their for the listeners that don't know what GMO is, genetically modified organisms. Monsanto right. is a corporation um, responsible for it, and uh, what they're doing is manipulating the genes of. Uh, crops like potatoes and corn and uh, soy, all types of vegetables, pretty much everything that we eat here in America and fast food and everything is GMO now. Right. And um, what, what we want, what most people were unanimous about in the group is just having it labeled. They're like, okay, you know, if you want to continue, um, you continue with the research, then go ahead, but we want other foods labeled. Yeah. Because right as of now, they're not required to tell anybody that they're genetically modifying right. foods. Right. So this is just a big pro. Was this like a protest all over the country, and this was like the national yeah. part of it? It, okay. it it just goes from city to city, and it just yeah. finally came around. It was in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky, last. Because yeah, you know so much more about that kind of stuff, and you got to march down the. You got to march down through downtown yeah. and mess your ankle up even more. Yeah, yeah. It, it was worth it, though, man. There, there's nothing that was... I was hung over, too. There's nothing that was going right. to gonna keep me from going to that because I'm pretty passionate about it, man. And <laughs> I was hung over, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they cut us out early Friday night, man. Well, you know, when, you, when you're when you're passionate about something, that's uh, a lot of... Was there a big turnout? Um, there's about... 50, 60 people. I was expecting more considering you know, yeah. the population of the city. We, when we've, we've got a lot of uh, like really progressive, like hipster, trendy type people right, coming yeah. in here, man. Nashville's a hipster mecca. Yeah, it's becoming that way. Yeah. And um, I expected a lot more people to show up, but you know, Saturday, 10 o'clock, you know, a lot of people are doing yeah, other there's things. There's not much going on. So it lasted from like for like a few hours. Yeah, and then there was a. Were free... there any drum circles? Yeah. <laughs> there was you a free had to be some drum circles. <laughs> when I say hippie, man, like these aren't just kind of like your weekend hippies. Uh, they're they're hardcore. I bet a friend. De- I bet a friend Devin was probably there. Devin well, J. Burns. If he lived in the South, then I'm sure he would have been. <laughs> With some of his cinnamon Kush. <laughs> uh, no, no, it it was uh, caramel Kush. Caramel Kush. Yeah. yeah okay. Edible like like I know. Kush. I don't. Know. <laughs> uh, well. Tonight we have on uh, Jim Harold, who is uh, a podcaster. He has a couple of podcasts that he does uh, called the Paranormal one called the Paranormal Podcast, another called the Campfire Tales. And uh, we're going to be talking to him about a couple of books that he's written about uh, the Campfire Tales, uh, personal people. This is pers- people's personal experiences that he's talked to, and he's compiled them into not only one but now two books. But first, I wanted to read a warning Uh to the world. Oh, yeah, you sent me that. I read that already. This is Satanism in America Today, Asheville, North Carolina. And this is uh, where our good friend of the show, Micah Hanks, who's been on three times, who's probably the leader of the coven, by the way. This is by Pamela Ray Schuffert. Presenting investigative journalism from a biblical Christian perspective. I gotta get this lady on the show. I am quietly crying as I write this article. I frankly don't want to even think about this city called Asheville, North Carolina. In my many years of research and spiritual warfare, I performed there throughout 13 years of living near that region. 
So many memories from there are painful and sad. I suffered at least two attempts on my life for my Christian witness there, including a setup for my abduction in nearby Ridgecrest, North Carolina, wherein a rider rental truck was awaiting me, complete with duct tape and chains and knockout drugs. Had they successfully abducted me, I would have been hauled to the infamous Satanist caverns of the Smoky Mountains to be nailed to a cross and sacrificed to, quote-unquote, teach me a little lesson. As my father's former high priest admitted to me as I interviewed him, for daring to stand against Satanism in those mountains. You see where all this is going. Yeah. These mountains are filled with the blood of Christian martyrs, in fact. There is a reason for my hesitation in returning to this dark region of America. Yes, thankfully God is also there, and many wonderful miracles have occurred in those mountains of the Bible Belt of America's southeast. There are many fine Christians living in this region as well, but it is far past time for the untold stories to be also be heard as well. And so I must obey the Holy Spirit, and he is telling me to write this article for his Christian intercessors, so they might be inspired to pray against this darkness called Satanism in America today, and for the salvation of these tragically lost people, old and young alike, of this region. And so here it is. Please pray for the many lost youth in that pagan Mecca of America Southeast, Asheville, North Carolina. The, <laughs> the battle is always raging for those who will own and control them. The power of Satan, or the power of the living God through Jesus Christ, their only hope. And understand that what is happening in the Asheville region is actually happening all over America, in city after city, and in your region as well. Most of you simply don't know it. The highway to hell that leads to Asheville runs right through your city as well. That's what the whole Monsanto is really a cover for Satanists. I can never forget my years of, of working... <laughs> among and interviewing these young people and hearing of their tragic experiences of being raised in multi-generational occult households throughout this region. I know I will cry as I write this article, even though I am sitting in a local internet cafe here in Montana, 2,500 miles away. I just can't help it. But then, should not tears be shed for cruelties and horrors such as these? Shouldn't we all as Christians in our nation be weeping for and praying against the terrible sins of this generation and the terrible darkness that Satan's influence and his followers have brought upon our nation. Should we not weep for the victims who continually are dying in secret on the satanic altars all across America, abducted adults and children who will die in terror and rejection, to never see their families again, and babies deliberately bred to only be sacrificed? You're laughing. This is, Christians should all be weeping over and praying about this great sin and darkness found across America. And in order to care, we must first know. Too many Americans Christians do not know, and that is why articles like this must be written, and why such articles like this must also be read. This is not an hour for Christian naivete on this urgent subject, nor there was there ever such an hour. How can I ever forget? The young man, who admitted to me he was recruited into Satanism in his elementary school in the Asheville area while in the fifth grade. And by the time he was 19, he had already sacrificed countless victims on the satanic altars of those mountains. And finally, here he sat before me, his eyes filled with grief and tears, so tired of this darkness and wanting out, and wanting Jesus to forgive him. Can Jesus ever forgive me for the terrible things I've done? He asked me as we sat in an isolated corner of a local Asheville McDonald's that day. He just admitted how his coven had forced him to sacrifice his girlfriend recently, because she was discovered to have been going to the police after giving up her newborn child for sacrifice and regretting it later. No one marks to the police on the coven and gets away with it. And because she was my girlfriend, they made me sacrifice her. We took her up to the side of Town Mountain and she was chained to our altar. 
They put that knife in my hand and I cut her open from neck to groin. And now he sat before me, his eyes filled with remorse and torment. My heart was breaking now as well as I envisioned all he recounted. For that moment, the Holy Spirit stepped in when I was at a loss for words and in shock. I can never forget how the love of God came down upon us both. I was compelled to take his hands of mine and to look at him for, with the love of God and to say what God had inspired me to speak. There is nothing you have done that Jesus did not die on the cross to forgive. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, this is too long. Wrap it up. Another young woman recounted <laughs> me in a church in downtown Asheville one day. Her lifelong experience of the grim Satanism in the Asheville area. Her family belonged to the Power People Coven, consisting of the self-professing rich, elite, and powerful of that region. My Kindle's freezing. I think it's the power of Satan. <laughs> what is going on? I'm grossed out right now. I think I threw Are up you? in my mouth. <laughs> Through years of research, I discovered every city across America has her own power people coven that secretly rules over that city from behind the shadows. Asheville was but a microcosm of what was happening in many other cities and regions across America in varying degrees. Every state has their, their Asheville. It could even be your own hometown. It's probably here in Asheville. My parents, I mean, they got the, the, the uh, Parthenon and everything. They're probably doing oh, yeah. rituals down there. My parents dedicated me to Satan from my mother's womb, she admitted. At the age of four, I was forced to offer my first act of human sacrifice. An infant was put in front of me and a knife was put in my hand. She told me all about her years in Asheville High School, where she and other kinds of Satanist parents had to constantly play the game of pretend. I'm going to skip down a little bit. One young man I spoke to in downtown Asheville while ministering to homeless in the park admitted to me his family was multi-generational vampires from that region and showed me some of his occult paraphernalia that he carefully unwrapped. Yes, vampirism is also found in the mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee. In fact, vampirism is where the goth look comes from. Really. Goths have that pale, pasty white look on their faces for a reason. Drinking blood creates anemia in the person doing it. Anemics have very pale complexions as a result. And then she has a picture of a drum circle, by the way, here. I have personally noted young people there who have filled their, filed their canine teeth down to sharp points to appear more vampire-like. Christians, let your hearts be broken for the endangered youth of America today. This is just, just insane. I was informed that some of these precious children, he's talking about uh, DHSS, uh, DHS, um, Department of Children's Services, mm -hmm. DCS. Mm -hmm. Some of these precious children were then sold to homosexual households out of state. They were forced into Satanist covens. They were even sacrificed or sold to pedophiles in the region as well. I mean, there might be something to this. A friend, know, former CIA, admitted that the DH, DHHS in that area was the most Satanist infiltrated agency there. Dude, you know, my ex-girlfriend and her, and her ex-husband... Um, tried to adopt. Do you know how tedious that process is? How precise? Yeah. Like they drill them. They they know every single detail well, about their not, life. Well, they're not they're not homosexual. If they were homosexual Satanists, they'd give them to them right away. <laughs> <laughs> when one Christian family I was assisting tried to rescue such children from the corrupt hands of the Satanists with the DSS, there they came under a horrific attack. A roadblock was set up one night for the husband as he was coming home on a lone country road. As soon as he brought his car to a stop, three Satanist gunmen emerged with guns blazing, one in Uzi. 
As he later recounted to me, John Bruce threw himself out of the vehicle and rolled down an embankment in the dark. They could not find him, and so shot up his vehicle and then fled. He climbed up the side of the hill and walked back to his car. Bullet holes filled it everywhere, even through the headrest, but not one bullet touched him. He was able to drive his vehicle home. In spite of a shattered windshield, we all knew this was the grace and mercy of God. And then she goes on to talk about how she was protesting abortion clinics and how the judge threw some of the protesters in jail and then that got overturned by like a higher court in North Carolina. So apparently there's some, you know, cultural war things going on in Asheville, North Carolina. It's a very liberal city in a fairly conservative state. You know, mm -hmm. our friend Heather, right. she's been there. She describes it. I haven't been to Asheville in a long time. It's just a little mountain town. Last time I was there when I was a kid, but it's a pretty. It's uh, grown. I keep yeah, hearing things about it. It's a lot of hippies. And they're like, there's the people that live out in the woods and cry, cry over trees. <laughs> yeah. They're the ones you show me. <laughs> so it's a pretty, there's a pretty liberal town. And uh, I think that's what this really has to go, what this really is about. I'm going to post this up so people can read it. But I've got another one from her I want to read at the end of the, uh, um, end of the podcast that I think is just hilarious. Please do get and it on the show. And it's, a, it's, a warning, it's a warning against Halloween, against uh, Satanist. Yeah, that's the one I read. I Satanist abduction that's, bands. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one you sent me. Yeah. This chick's paranoid too. Yeah, it's 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 some crazy. So by stuff. by her logic, anybody who's committing a crime is a Satanist. Right. Well, anybody that anybody that's against her basically <laughs> is either a Satanist or a witch. Speaking of which, uh, thoughts on Michelle Balanger last time? Oh, she's not a Satanist. I'm just. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, like I said at, after the show, I, I liked her a lot. She's really cool. She knows yeah. her stuff, man, and. Uh, just like so many of our other guests, they're pros on the subject. You know, you get some real pros on the show. And, yeah. And uh, I'd like to go look around her library. And that's, <laughs> she and says you like some like 3,000 books. Yeah. You know, I've been moving and setting my books up, and I'm like, there's no way I have 3,000 books. I, yeah. probably, I don't think I've even cracked 1,000, but man. And I know my mom's got to be pushing 3,000. Her old house yeah, she's is got a whole, just whole piles. bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah. She's a book hoarder. Just one thing, and uh, you know, apologize to anybody that was listening to that show. There was a lot of like bumping around and and just like tapping. <laughs> Don't know why. Mic. Like we we weren't yeah. touching the mic or anything. Well, this mic picks up a little more than we think. It's picking so, up the powers of the occult. Yeah, it's yeah. picking up the occult. So some of that some of that was on her end too. Uh, not necessarily the tapping, but just kind of like her voice would kind of cut all in and out. Um, yeah. I think she's using like a gaming headset which probably isn't the best but uh i think it was good i think it was really informative and i really was glad to have yeah oh yeah she, on the show. she can answer a lot of questions absolutely because uh, it, it, it like uh like we were talking about it spans such a wide range of knowledge man right because it's, it's taken esoteric uh beliefs and systems of magic from each different um like hidden sect of religion you know all mm -hmm. around the world there's so much that we've talked about too that uh, goes into that. Like, uh, I'd like to get somebody to talk, come in and talk about like Aleister Crowley. You know, just kind of devote a whole show to that. Oh yeah. Find somebody that's that's into that. I know there's a few people that are 
don't like him too much, but uh, you know, still would be kind of informative. Right. But let's get on to the guest. Uh, like I said, we got Jim Harold coming on, and uh, if there's anything to add, we'll just go ahead and go to him. Go ahead. All right. We'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Okay, we're back on Conspiracy Normal with uh, Luke with his Miller High Life in his hand. <laughs> And, Courtesy uh, of Adam. That's right. And on the line we have uh, Jim Harold, who is uh, a podcaster, someone that uh, has kind of an, kind of an idol of mine. And uh, I want to bring Jim on. We're going to talk about uh, campfire uh, stories. And uh, Jim, uh, kind of introduce yourself uh, to any of our audience that doesn't know who you are. Uh, sure. Like what you what it is you do. We talk about your uh, the podcast that you have. Well, well, first of all, I want to thank both of you for having me on the show. I appreciate it, and thank you for the very kind words. You're, you're too kind. Well, a little bit of, about me for people who haven't heard of me or my shows. Uh, I've been podcasting uh, since 2005. Uh, my first show, which continues to this day, is the Paranormal Podcast, which are a series of interviews with authors and experts about the paranormal. And then a few years later, in 2009, I started a show called Jim Harold's Campfire, where uh, every week we get together around our electronic campfire and share uh, spooky stories from people uh, all over the world. They could be ghost stories, they could be UFO stories, they could be cryptid stories, uh, just a whole melange of that kind of thing. So those uh, podcasts are free and available to uh, folks. Uh, the last 90 days are absolutely free, and you can find all that at jimherald.com. Uh, the shows are also available through iTunes, the Apple Podcasts app, Roku, TuneIn, Radio, Stitcher Radio, uh, so a whole host of places you can find the uh, free uh, free uh, podcast. And as an offshoot of my Campfire podcast, I've done a couple of books, and uh, the latest one is just out in the last three weeks, and it's really kind of taken off. I'm pretty excited. It's called True Ghost Stories, Jim Harold's Campfire 2. It's, uh, you can find it at jimheraldbooks.com. That'll take you right to the Amazon page. It's available on Kindle for $2.99, and then there's a paperback edition uh, if you're interested, if you still like the Dead Tree edition, but I steer most people to the Kindle edition because you can read it on a lot of different formats, and that's a compilation of 70 different spooky stories from my campfire show. Okay, well, we thought you would be a great guest to have on, especially the time of year, and being that it's October 13, 2013, seems like a good kind of numerological Sounds date out. to have you on. <laughs> sure it does. Uh, but I want to go into like how you have for the two books that you've written, uh, both have been about the campfire tales and how do you go about, um, compiling those and, uh, how do you get those, how do you get these stories? Well, basically they're from listeners. We put out the call that people can go and back to your listeners can do it if they'd like to go over to jimherald.com slash campfire. There's a little form there that they sign up. Uh, there's some time slots they can sign up for and I give those people a call and whether it's via phone or Skype, I call out to them, and we just have a chat by whatever their experience is. And it's kind of interesting because we get callers from all over the world. I have, of course, the uh, majority of my callers are from the U.S., Canada. We've had South America. We've had Norway, certainly the U.K. We hear from a lot. Australia, we hear from a lot. So we really kind of compile these stories from all over the world. And a few years after doing this, I thought, well... Wouldn't it make sense to have 
a book of these because as we know, you know, we, we would love everybody to listen to internet radio and podcasts and the like, but some people don't do that. But still, these are great stories that I think deserve to be heard. So I thought, hey, why not compile them into a book? So uh, the first book and the second book, uh, about 70 stories each. Uh, and I really tried to focus on the ones I thought were the, the most impactful stories, whether it be on the spooky side or the heartwarming side, just stories that kind of stick with you. When you're um, when you're listening to these stories, are you uh, do you ever have any stories that you like that you doubt as being maybe maybe true? Are you just kind of just take it uh, or like hear the tone of the person's voice that maybe that they're they're telling you the truth? Well, for the you know, I maybe I've had a couple of times over the last few years. I thought maybe it was somebody was trying to put me on, but I got to be honest with you. I think most people. The vast majority of people are saying something that they believe happened to them or they experienced. Now, um, maybe it'll be a good place, a natural place to kind of give you my theory on the paranormal. I don't think each and every story is really paranormal. I think sometimes people can interpret things as paranormal when they're really not. Unfortunately, a small percentage of things that we hear are hoaxers and those are people that are really my pet peeve because they ruin it for everybody else who's really interested in exploring this material seriously. Uh, and um, then, then you have the rest of the people who, uh, you know, experience something. Now, again, I think sometimes people can, for example, the UFO phenomena. I think there's probably a good percentage of those sightings that are maybe uh, heavenly bodies, maybe military experiments. Uh, so forth and so on. But I think there's a small percentage that, you know, just can't explain by normal means. So where does that leave that? What, what does it mean? So in answer to your question, the vast majority of people I talk to, I believe, are giving a sincere and honest account of what happened to them. Okay. Well, I want to get into uh, some of the stories. Um, sure. Let's talk about, and I guess for the best for this time of year, uh, ghost stories. Yes. What are some of the better ghost stories that you've had um, in these books? Well, uh, you know, there, there, there's so many different stories, but let me see if I can pick one here because uh, I, I kind of like the non-conventional one. Now, this is one I've not told a lot on the air, but I really, uh, I really like this one. Um, this is about uh, a young man. He was, uh, I believe, from Texas, and he was very close to his grandmother. And his grandma called him by the name J-Boy. That was his nickname. And nobody else other than his father called him that. Called him that. So uh, it was really kind of a code between them. So anyway, I call this book, She Left a Message at the Beep. Um, so anyway, that one morning this man was, was at work. He was in his 20s, and he got a call from his dad. And his dad had told him that his grandmother had had a heart attack, but she, that she had been revived and she was fine. She was on her way to the hospital. And um, they'd taken her to one hospital, and they were transferring her to a hospital with a little more advanced capabilities. And the son talked to the father on the phone, and he said, now, are you sure she's okay? And uh, his dad said, yeah, she's fine. She gave me a thumbs up as she was sitting in the back of the ambulance. And they said, okay, and hung up. Now, uh, a little time went on, and then he was sitting at work, and all of a sudden he said he just broke down. And he told his boss, I've got to go, I've got to go. And he said, what's wrong? And he said, something's wrong with my grandmother. She had this episode. I don't know, but something's wrong. He came home, and this was before cell phones, so actually his dad drove to his house and said, 
J-Boy, uh, Ma died. Uh, so she had passed away as they were pulling into this second hospital. And it was very, very dramatic for him. He was distraught. So a few days went by, and he had one of those. This is back, I believe, in the early 90s, it sounds like. A few days went by, and he had one of those old-fashioned answering machines that had blinking lights, you know, with the okay. tape and the blinking lights. He said, right. if you have one message, the light on the machine blinked once, two messages, twice, so on and so forth. He got home from work one day, and there were three messages on the machine. As uh, he said, it had been several days since his grandmother died, and there were multiple messages left on the machine, and they were fully lengthy. He pushed play, and the first message was a hang-up. The second message was a salesperson. The third message was his grandmother's voice. She said, I love you, J-Boy. And he just couldn't believe what he heard, so he's going to rewind it all and listen again. The first message he played back was a hang-up. The second message was a salesperson, and there was no third message. Whoa. So... <laughs> He said that her message was very comforting, but it also told him he needed to watch his P's and Q's because his grandmother could still see what he was doing. What do you make of something like that, Jim? Uh, well, really, and, and these kind of stories are very kind of, to me, it's one thing or another. Well, there's three possibilities. One, and I don't believe this is the case, the experiencer made it up. I don't believe that's the case. He seemed extremely sincere. Two, he was imagining it. And I don't necessarily believe that's the case. Or three, his mother left, uh, his grandmother left a message on the machine, and that's the one I actually think is the most likely of the three. Yeah. I mean, it's it just kind of. I, I mean, for example, a UFO story. Sometimes, you know, depending on it, you can say, well, it could be a military experiment, it could be an airplane, it could be uh, a star. But something like this, it kind of, you know, it's it's pretty much one thing or the other. You know what I'm saying? Right. That kind of gave me a little chill at the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, you think yeah. that gave you a chill? Oh, I've got one for you that really give you a chill. I, I mean, it's just so <laughs> well so well executed. Like, the story is just really well yeah. executed. The calls yeah, and, from the it, dead thing is really, really, Yeah, the really phone call eerie. from the dead. Yeah. Well, this, th i, I got to tell you this story. I love this story. This is called A Nightmare Before Elm Street. Not I was about to ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Well, this one, I got to tell you, uh, this is one of my favorites. So this goes back, the uh, story starts back in 1961, way back when. And uh, this gentleman, Frank from Colorado at the time, was five years old. He lived with his mom. His dad was in the service. Um, so anyway, uh, they lived in this little house uh, that was probably at that time about 60 years old. He said he didn't really ever like the the house. He said the house frightened him and he had a lot of nightmares in it, but one of them really stuck out to him. And remember, keep in mind, this is 1961. Uh, he had gone to sleep and in the dream he was in his backyard. There was a hill in the backyard and the door opened out of the hill and this figure came out of the hill and was chasing him. He said the person had a long black coat on and had long fingers with knives on them. He said he was running from him, and he fell, and in his dream, he was trying to drag himself away, but just before this figure got to him, he woke up. He said at the time, he shared a room with his sister, who was four, and when he woke up, he told her to get his mom, because he couldn't move his legs. So, at that time, you know, back in the day, they had house calls. So, the doctor comes to take care of things, and it turns out that... Uh, uh, 
that he says, hey, who scared the heck out of this kid? What happened? And he said he had a nightmare. And it was several days before he could actually move his legs again. His grandma would come over and manipulate his legs and do like a rudimentary uh, part of therapy, and he couldn't move his legs. But that's not even the spooky part. Here comes the spooky part. Uh, well, he continued to occasionally throughout his childhood and teenage years have this dream. It never got quite as far as it did that one time, but it was recurring. And when it did, he would get a fever, so he kind of associated it with being sick. So anyway, this went on, and now let's fast forward to quite a few years later, 1988. And um, he had this friend, and they were talking or whatever, and he said, oh, I've got this tape of this movie you really ought to check out. It's called Nightmare on Elm Street. So he gave him, you know, this is old school, so he gave him a VHS tape of it. Yeah. He came home, he popped the VHS into his VCR, and he said, when he turned it on, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Because when I first saw the Freddy Krueger character, I realized this was the person who was in my nightmare in 1961. Freddy killed kids in their dreams. He said, I always told my mother, I thought if he caught me, he would have killed me. I would have died in my sleep. That I lived that movie over 20 years before it was made. That's so weird. Wow. That's so that strange. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Nightmare on Elm Street was based off, I think, um, uh, people from Laos that were having nightmares. It was based on a real event that they had. Uh, oh, I didn't they know been, that. Yeah, they, I think they were from the Hmong tribe, and they mm-hmm. have. They have a serious problem, I think, with like sleep paralysis and that kind of thing. Hmm. And the they were um, they were not go to sleep because they were afraid that to go to bed because they were having such terrible nightmares. Huh. And so it's kind of the same similar thing as in the Nightmare on Elm Street, where they can't go to bed or where Freddy will get them, but. Uh, and it affected their health so much that a few a few of them just died. Yeah, it's interesting. See, I didn't know that. So uh, you've you've taught the guests something, and that's <laughs> interesting because I think these stories. Um, uh, I was actually talking. I was lucky enough to be on Coast to Coast the other night, yeah. and um, I was talking to George Norrie about this, and we talked about tapping into the collective consciousness, and it's interesting that if you believe in something like. Uh, I guess it's technically the collective unconscious, but if you believe in it, the idea that these ideas and these memes are floating out there and we all tap into them, and uh, maybe this Freddy Krueger character is one of them. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like a kind of uh, Jungian um, archetype. Exactly. 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 And, and you know, another thing, uh, I've got like a Dream Dictionary app on my phone, the Dream Analysis app, and I keep seeing... Like reoccurring uh, things because you know whoever whoever makes the app has to uh, edit it so that they cover like everybody's dream and what they see. But right. it seems it seems to be a limited database. Well, it's, uh, for example, you know you hear people having dreams. I I can't remember what it's supposed to mean, but people having dreams of their teeth falling out is common. Right. So why do why do so many people have this dream? What is there something about it? Are we all tapping into something? And I do believe that. I mean, I take this example. Now, now some people may see say that because people see movies and then they invent things. But if you look at a, uh, you know, at this point, what, almost 50-year-old episode of Star Trek, and you see a lot of the devices, the devices exist. Now, a lot of that's like, 
you know, whoever invented the flip phone said, boy, wouldn't it make it be neat to make it look like a communicator? Now, that's part of it. But some of it, for example, Jules Verne, uh, one of his stories talked about a moonshot. And this is like in 1896 or something. And right. if you look at all the different points, the name of the command module, the budget, uh, the, the, the fact that the moonshot was going to come from Florida and it did in his account, all these different things matched up. Now, some of them maybe they took the, the I believe Columbia was the name of the command module and they, they used that uh, for the command module. I think that's it. And he used it for the name of the craft. Now, maybe somebody said, read that story and said, wouldn't that be cool? But the budgetary numbers, <laughs> the budgetary numbers matched up. The fact that they based the moonshot in Florida, I don't think somebody in D.C. or the people that started NASA said, well, Jules Verne thought it would be a good idea to put this in Florida. Yeah. I they mean, just amazing. It for other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, there was a. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, again, to me, it speaks to this idea that uh, there's this collective unconscious, and we all tap into it and, and love these things that we experience and filter through. That's where they're coming from. There was, uh, I think, 10 to 15 years before the Titanic. Oh, yes. Uh, there was yes, a, yes, yes, yes. The, the novel Titan. written, but they called it, they called the ship the Titan, yep. which was supposedly unsinkable, and it hit an, hit an iceberg and sunk. Oh. Yep. That was in the book. Yeah. That is absolutely yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know this, how I found out about this? Uh, because I've always been a big fan of uh, Twilight Zone and Netflix, which I love. Um, they have a show on there, which I'd heard of, but never seen. It's called One Step Beyond. And it's basically very much like a Twilight Zone. And uh, um, uh, they had an episode about that. And I saw it and I'm like, oh, my God. I got to look this up, and then I looked it up, and sure enough, yeah, the the whatever it was, the wreck of the Titan or something yeah. like that. Um, so uh, the, the, uh, that that kind of stuff exists. I mean, it's in black and white. Right. Well, one weird one that you have in the book, uh, and I think in some ways it may go into some some of this. It's a very strange one. Uh, I remember hearing this on your show uh, when the guy talked to you. Was about the changing faces. I think this is one that Luke would be really interested <laughs> yeah. in. Oh, I had a dream like that before, really? too. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is one of those ones that's almost like kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it, it's beyond explanation. It doesn't really fit into one genre or another. It's just really, really weird. So basically the idea is, is that this was gentleman's name was Steve, and he's from Australia. And he had moved into an apartment. And he got friendly with this lady who lived upstairs. So one evening, uh, she invited him over, and they were going to have some tea. And so they're kind of sitting across from each other in the room, and they have some kind of heater going, and it's hissing, and he's drinking the tea, and he's getting more and more relaxed, almost dozing off. And he looks at her, and she's sitting across with her tea. But when he opens her eyes and looks at her, it's not her. Uh, he said that, he, when he looked at her, what she, he saw was that her whole head had turned into a golden mask. It wasn't a human face at all, but a mask. And it looked like it was made of beaten metal. It was a golden-colored mask. He said it could have been bronze, but it looked very much gold. He said he could see the details. He could see the pits in the metal where they'd beaten it. And it looked like little rivets and so forth connecting it. He closed his eyes again. He said he was terrified. He wasn't making any sound. There was a sound of this heater going, and he was lying there and thinking, in a way, I'm super relaxed. In a way, I'm terrified. 
And he thought that he'd relaxed so much that it had opened him up somehow psychically. Now, I had asked the question, because I think it's the natural question, is it possible somebody put something in the tea? And he said, categorically, no. He said, I've never been a drug taker, and I certainly think I would know if I was under the influence of everything. So the story went on. He lay there for a while. He didn't know how long. He said it could have been 30 seconds or 10 or been minutes. He said, I sat there thinking, what am I going to do? He wanted to say something, but he was afraid who or what was going to answer back. He said eventually he did open his eyes, but instead of this time seeing the mask, he saw a broad face, a male face. It had dark hair, and it was parted in the middle. It was a classic Native American. Broad head, large head, the hair came down to a ponytail. He said he looked quite happy and friendly. Within a moment, as he was looking at this face, it changed into another. The next two faces were women from India. And, and then it just started flashing from face to face. Now, he used an analogy of a group that I'm not familiar with, I think a British or Australian group, but I kind of compare it to, from his description, remember that real old Michael uh, Jackson uh, video, yeah. black or white, where the yeah. faces morph. That's what I'm picturing. Right. So he went through all these faces. He closed his eyes again and eventually got the courage to say her name. And she just answered me back, very matter-of-factly. And I said, are you feeling okay? And she said, yeah, I'm fine. And while they were sitting there, they both had opened their eyes. He said to her, I feel as though I've seen your face change, which he says was quite an understatement. And she said casually back, I think I saw your face change too. And he said, that's all I can remember. He left, he went to back downstairs, and they didn't talk about it anymore. Now, for years, he kind of lived in silence about this, never talked to people about it. And then he was watching uh, an Australian TV program called The Unexplained that was on in the early 1990s on Australian TV. And it turned out that there was this Australian shock jock who told basically the same story that he was doing a spot with a psychic and the psychic took him into another room and said, I want to show you something. And basically shapeshifted in front of this man. And our caller said that was such a relief to him because he felt it totally vindicated him. It was something totally independent of him, somebody he didn't know, somebody who was in the public eye saying, yeah, this happened to me too. So um, he said, I'm not imagining things. And she didn't slip in anything into the tea. And he's very confident what he says happened, happened. How to explain it? I have no idea. Very strange. You said you'd had a dream like that, Luke. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was obviously dreaming, though. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's wide awake. Right. But, um, you know, I was I was sticking to the whole time I was hearing the story, uh, having some kind of psychedelic in the teeth, because I just found out recently that they're so readily available in our area. I mean, there, there are so many things that grow out in the woods just locally here, and a tea enthusiast would be, like, highly likely to go out and, you know, experiment with some kind of leaf or something like that and accidentally get a psychedelic. But, you know, since you said that, that you met the other guy from Australia, that kind of changed, that changes things a little bit, you know? Right. Well, the thing is, is I've got to say, you know, I wasn't there. I have no way of knowing. I can only take him at his word, and we did bring up that question, and he said yeah. no. So if, if we eliminate that, it really makes it very strange. I have to ask you, Jim, uh, this is one that's a point of contention between me and Luke because he doesn't believe in it. Uh, I, I do in some ways, in some ways I don't, but that's about Ouija boards. Yes. What about we? He's shaking his head. What about like Ouija board stories? Do you have anything that's like 
I've heard some on the show before. Oh, yeah. We, ha- we have quite a Ouija board story. Now, I'll give you my philosophy on the Ouija board. Um, some people think that they're just a game. Uh, they're nothing. Um, so that's, that's, that's one camp. There's another camp that says that um, they do have spiritual properties and you can use them to contact entities and so forth. But they're a tool like any other tool and there's nothing inherently evil in them. And then there's a camp that feels that when you play with them, you're playing with spiritual fire. I tend to fall into that camp because, uh, again, I don't know if they work or not. But all I can say is, you know, I wouldn't necessarily keep my uh, doors open at night and put a sign out on the front lawn and say, hey, thieves, come in here. You know, and that's kind of the, <laughs> that's kind of the way I look at Ouija. But, you know, some of our callers experiment. And this story is called The Walking Ouija. Now, this is about a young man who, um, you know, seemed like he was pretty advanced for his age. He was a teenager, but he had a spiritual teacher. This woman taught him different spiritual teachings and so forth. And one day, he called, she called him over, and he came into her house, and she had, like, this hardwood floor uh, as you come in. And it's very sparsely furnished, if you can picture it. And she has a, uh, has a Ouija board sitting in the middle of the uh, floor. And he thought that was spooky alone. He said he went in with her, and she went to the mantle on the fireplace and grabbed a little package. It was a black silk wrap bundle, and she gave it to him. And she sat there and waited. She told him to open it, and she opened it up and pulled it out. And when I opened up the bundle, this old black silk bundle, it contained the planchette for the Ouija board. This is Gabriel from Texas, by the way. As soon as he touched the planchette, again, that little piece that you put your hands on, the box on the floor started to rattle by itself, he says. The teacher, we'll call her Angela, walked over to the box, opened it up, and had Gabriel sit down at the far end of the room, and she said, watch. And he watched and waited, and she pulled the board out and put it on the floor face down. As he watched, he says, along its crease, the board started to rise up off the floor. The ends of the board began to come together, and it flattened out and made progress about six or eight inches across the floor, she says. It basically, get this, it did a stuttering, slow motion, almost inchworm-style movement across the floor toward me. Now, guys, I don't know about you. If I'm sitting in a room and there's a Ouija board walking across the room by itself, I'm not in that room very long. (laughs) But anyway, he said he knew better not to do anything. (laughs) He said he sat perfectly still but was scared out of his wits. While I was walking across the floor, Angela went over to the fireplace and started up a fire. Well, the board was still two or three feet away from me. She said, okay, wrap up the planchet. So she wrapped it back up in black silk, and the activity ceased. And Gabriel goes on to say that um, you can isolate negative energies through the use of black silk. I'm not expert on these things, but that, that's his, his thought on it. But anyway, once the board stopped moving, she had the fire going. She took the board and tossed it into the fire. He said that that kind of bugged him out. <laughs> you know, whatever would have been bugged up. But anyway, the board did not burn. The It sat there, the flames licked at it, but there was a lot of smoke, but the board was completely undamaged. Now, he says that, she said, okay, the planchette. So he unwrapped the planchette and handed it to her and tossed it in the fire. Nothing happened for a minute, and then the planchette itself began to kind of melt around the edges and catch fire, and as it did, the board did too. So he says there was nothing special about the board. It's just like one you would buy in a store. And uh, 
you know, it's just a very, very weird story. It could have had something attached to it, possibly. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Uh, you said one's a believer and one's not. What are your guys' thoughts on the Ouija board? I'll let Luke go first on that one. Well, um, it's been a while since I've read about the Ouija board and its creation, but I know that uh, Milton Bradley uh, came out with it in the 50s as just a game for children. That's true. Yeah. And um, it it really depends on your position and uh, on, on occult matters. Because I like to stick to more traditional um, ways of um, clairvoyance, like like scrying and things like that, that have been around for centuries. You know, I, I just don't feel like there's much authenticity to something that uh, is, you know, was come up with just to be a board game. And and uh, and, and again, it depends. It just depends on your position. What what you think about what could be a, a tool for scrying and what what could not be. Well, one one thing I would say is that my understanding was actually created, uh, as you said, as just like a parlor game. I think it goes back a little further than that. I think before uh, the Milton Bradley folks got a hold of it, I think it was like 1890 or something. And then I guess what happened, if I'm understanding correctly from what I've researched, and again, I could be wrong, um, it was just used as a parlor game. And then it started getting more linked to the occult around World War One. Now, but what I'm wondering is, and I'm just throwing this out there, I don't know for sure. Um, just a, a possibility. I mean, even if something was meant originally as a game, could spirits or entities attach itself to it, uh, saying, hey, this is a heck of a tool for us to communicate, or, uh, you know, I dare say it, possess, or whatever it might be. Just a thought, just a thought. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, just a, just some food for thought. I agree with that, and I, I would say, too, that I think that I could take anything, I could take a piece of paper write some letters on it. Oh, we've or, had people on the campfire say they've done just that, that they right. didn't have uh, one, they just made one out of paper and weird things. I think it's not really the board, it's the intention of the group of people that is around yeah. the board. Yeah. You're just using the board as a focus, and everybody else is the channel. And, and, and honestly, that's something that I'm not black and wh- black or white on. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of riding the fence on what could be a tool for scrying and what, what is not, you know. Right. And I think in the case of that walking board, it could be where it is that it's something is attached to it, like you know the, the John Zaffis and the uh, you know his museum there in Connecticut, where he has all the stuff that's uh, has attachments to it. Well, actually, I have a story very much like that. If you'd like to hear it, absolutely. Called the haunted. Well, actually, it's called the reclining ghost. And it's a story about uh, our caller was, uh, you know, a child, or probably a teenager. And she tells the story of when uh, her mom had a friend who wanted to get some, rid of some furniture, you know, and you give it to friends and so forth. And they went over to pick it up, and the patriarch of the family was this older gentleman in his 80s. And they had a couple of other people, pieces of furniture and a couple of recliners. And he said, well, you can take the recliners, but don't give them to anybody. And she said, the mother of the family said, fine, didn't think any more of it, took it home, and then kind of some weird things started happening. First of all, a couple months after this happened, the old man passed away. And they ended up putting one of the recliners in uh, the, the, our caller had a brother. They ended up putting it in his room. And he ended up getting really sick. He got appendicitis. And then a deep depression had also come upon him. 
and um, he had a surgery and everything was okay. But it was just kind of weird. They put the, the recliner in there and just he, a dark cloud came over him. They ended up giving it uh, to her older sister who actually lived out of the home now. She had her own family. She was happy to get the free furniture too. So they took it and they put it in her son's bedroom. Now, um, um, this boy would tell his mom that sometimes at night he would see the chair move by itself. He said he would see this hand come across uh, the resting arm area and it was tapping, like tapping fingers. He told his mom, there's this arm. I'm seeing this thing. I don't like it. What is this? And she didn't believe him, which would be probably the natural reaction. She said, just ignore it. You're just tired. You're stressed from school. And he insisted that he was seeing something. So anyway, uh, what they ended up doing, uh, one night it happened again. And this time he went to his mom and he refused to go back in his room. To reassure him, she offered to take the chair and put it in her room to show that there was nothing to it. A couple of days later, after they went to bed, she started to hear something. (laughs) She looked, and all of a sudden, she saw the chair moving, and she started to see the apparition of the arm come up, just as the boy had said. It was starting to tap its hands, and it started to take a weird demonic form. said that it freaked her out so much that she grabbed the chair, put it out into the curb in the middle of the night to get rid of it permanently. So you would think, you know, good riddance to bad rubbish, it's all over. Not so fast. She got back into the house. All of a sudden, she heard something rocking back and forth, plus a dragging sound. What was the sound? They thought maybe somebody came across, saw the chair, and wanted to take it. You know, garbage pickers. And uh, her son looked out the window and got a real shock. They saw the chair rocking and dragging itself along the curb. She told us, I could have sworn I'm not lying, but what I saw looked like a figure, and there were these weird spirits just jumping out of the thing. I just closed the windows and everything. I didn't want to even open a window or crack it open or anything. I don't care. After that, our our caller, uh, Jeannie from Washington, doesn't remember what happened to the chair. Now, they still have the other chair, but there's never been any problems with that. But, boy, (laughs) that was some gift. That's weird. It's intense. (laughs) And that's the thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, after I've done these shows for a while, you know, a few years, and you hear, you know, several stories every week, you kind of get this thought, well, I've heard it all. Nobody's ever going to come up with anything that uh, throws me. But then you hear something like this, and it's like there certainly is always something new under the sun. Who's going to one-up it? Yeah, I've heard several stories about uh, furniture moving around from different people for some reason furniture just seems to be like a you know a, 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 an attraction a magnet to, to well spirits. you think about it i mean if you buy into the idea of a spirit world and in some extent the stone tape theory that there's like psychic imprints really what are we closer to than the things that we wear the things we sit in on the things we lie on uh, you know, a couch, you know, if you sit in a couch or a recliner and you watch TV every night for 15 years, I mean, if you believe in things like inanimate objects soaking up psychic energy, you know, you've been, you know, cheek to jowl with these things for years. So it would make sense. I know that, and again, it could be psychological, but for example, I've got an old pocket knife that my, um, grandfather had and he's been dead well i'm I, I think i'm quite a bit older than you guys i'm in my 40s and um he's been dead for over 30 years but i swear when i see that knife and i feel that knife i can feel his essence now again right. it could all be mental 
it, it could be me just imagining that. But right. I see and feel that knife. It just seems like some way he's connected to it. And, and again, I don't discount the thought that it might just all be in my head. Going into that, something kind of similar, Jim, is stories of people smelling um, different smells that they associate with a departed loved one. Oh, yeah. I don't think I have... I think there may have been... Oh, yes, yes, there is one, isn't there? Um, and uh, you were trying to lead me into that, and I, I didn't catch it, but I know which one you're talking about now. Um, and I do believe that. Um, and, and this particular caller, this is Thomas from... I'm just looking for it here. Thomas from Illinois, and it's about uh, Grandpa's pipe smoke. And I think this is a cool one. I like And He says, I believe that my four-year-old son has actually interact- interacted with my grandfather who passed long before his son was born. He said, the reason I say this is because my son will be sitting in our easy chair in the living room and he'll start giggling and tickling his, uh, and kicking his feet and he'll say, he's tickling my feet. He's tickling my feet. I'll ask who and he'll say, the man. He said, it kind of struck him as odd and he immediately thought of his grandfather because his grandfather, when they were kids, had an affinity for tickling the heck out of their feet. That was kind of how he teased him and picked on him. He said, what's more, even more odd is the fact that when this is happening, I'll get the distinct smell of cherry pipe tobacco, which is the exact tobacco my grandfather used to smoke. And he adds, nobody in the house smokes. He says, I've always believed that children are more open to these things before they're taught that, hey, you're not supposed to believe that stuff. As a matter of fact, it's not just his grandfather that his son and see. And sometimes when he has to go to the bathroom, he'll run upstairs and go with no problem at all. And then there are other times he'll just freeze midway and stop and stare up there and say, I'll say, come on, let's go. And he'll say, I don't want to go in there because the man's in there. He'll be kind of scared about it. So, and I do believe that. I mean, it makes sense to me that children are more sensitive to these things than grown-ups. And I do believe there's, there's different stories in the book that kind of get to this and other stories of story I've experienced and, and different stories that sometimes maybe when those have passed are trying to communicate with us in some way. It's not necessarily the way it is in the movies where there's like a full-body apparition that just appears like Jacob Marley that there may be other ways that they can get their message across through sight, sound, uh, smell, so forth and so on. One of the things that interests me, Jim, is reincarnation. And you have a story uh, about a child talking about being someone else, which is something that I've heard quite a lot. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing about that is is that, and this is always one of the favorite stories in the book when I tell people different stories. This may be my favorite story in the book. It's not spooky, per se, but it really makes you think. And, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those stories that makes you go, hmm, this is actually from Michelle in the U.K. And she says every time she thinks of this experience, she wishes she could go back and ask more questions. He has two so- she had two sons, and at the time of the story, his, her oldest was three years old. And they were all sitting in their dining room. It was a beautiful day. This was in England, so they had the window to the back garden open. And she said that she heard a biplane fly over. You know, the type of old-fashioned World War I flying ace Red Baron-type plane with the dual wings. She said you could hear it because of the window being open and the fact that they were near some small airports. All of a sudden, a three-year-old of the family pipes up, and he says, Oh, 
that sounds like the plane that killed me. And she said, really? Because he was very blasé about it, very matter-of-fact. And he said, yeah, you remember when I had another mom? I was a man and I was called Stephen? <laughs> and uh, she said, okay. Uh, now, she says she didn't want to lead him on to any conclusion, so she, she just kind of let him go with it. And he said, oh, yes, I used to live with my mom in London. My girlfriend used to come around, and we would all go down to the pub on the corner. He was three. He'd never been to any kind of pub. He said, right. We were sitting in the front room of my mom's house, and we were listening to the radio, and all of a sudden it went boom, and there was blood everywhere, he said. Oh, oh, and he was sort of flailing his arms as he was saying this, and says, I was just amazed, and he was just coming out so matter-of-factly. She said, it's very hard when a child's telling you something like that not to want to ask really pertinent questions, but it could lead you down the wrong route. They'll start making things up. So she didn't press him on it, and now she says that maybe she wished she, she would towards the end of the story so she could have researched it and found out, you know, if there was something behind this. He's now 24 years old, and he doesn't remember a thing, but Michelle says it's something she'll never forget. Now, there, there's really... A couple of possibilities are there. One is that it's made up, which I don't believe it is. And the other possibility, as I see it, is he was remembering some type of past life. Um, and I can't think of a third possibility, although I'm sure there is one. It's so specific. I was at the pub, and we went to the pub at the corner. Right. And, you know, the, the, I heard the plane, and... Uh, just it, it, it makes you think of the Blitz, of the, of the bombing of London in the 40s. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, it does make you think. I mean, who knows? You know, the the time they were flying biplanes, uh, it was fairly early. It could have been, you know, maybe an experimental flight. Who knows what it might have been? But I yeah. just got to tell you, it's, uh, it's one that will make you think. I know that. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I have my own kind of um, odd... I guess you could say reincarnation. Oh, cool. Um, story. Uh, I just remember, it's very strange. I never said it on, on the podcast before, but, uh, I, what I remember is seeing like, uh, like, like the end that, that I can still see it in my head. It's very weird. Like, the dawn, it, like the dusk, it's dusk, and I can see hills in the background, and I can see like uh, a guy like a, like a, riding a horse on a three-cornered hat on kind of like a revolutionary or a Napoleonic hmm. War kind of thing. Right. And then maybe my next, and there's some people milling around somewhere, and then the next memory, I'm like three, two or three years old. Huh. Huh. Oh, my it's goodness. very, very odd. Just yeah, this it is. odd memory that just somehow crept in somewhere. Uh, I, I can't explain it, really. So hold yeah. on, uh, you you were thinking these things at that age, and you remember it? No, I it? remembered it like as as a real. It's like a real memory. But, but it, it was at the age of uh, two or three. You were talking. It was before. <laughs> it's something before. I remember. Then I then my memories are. Uh, and then they start two or three of you. Yes. Okay. Right. Right, right. Oh, weird. Yeah. It's very weird. Uh, one of the things we don't talk about too much on the show, Jim, we don't talk about cryptids a lot. So no. it's kind of cool <laughs> that you've got some, uh, you've got some stories. So what's kind of like the a really good cryptid story that you have in the book? 
Well, it's interesting because we don't get as many cryptid stories either. Uh, but I thought, you know, it is something that comes up and people do see them, so I thought that I should include them. Let's see if I can pick out a favorite one here because we have a few. Um, probably the one, it's kind of a short story, uh, but um, it's one that, that really makes you think. Now, uh, you know that the Hispanic culture has a lot of memes and a, a great interest in the supernatural. And it comes from that culture, this story. Uh, it is Ben from Texas, and he talks about Lechusa. And Lechusa is a supernatural figure in Hispanic culture, and it has wings and is very sinister. And he said when he was a kid, he was always told by his grandma that if you're doing something really wrong or disobedient, that Lechusa would get you. She said, Lechusa will get you if you don't listen. So being a kid, he paid absolutely no attention to her. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, he, he said he was about 10 years old, and he was walking down the, the street, and he heard birds chirping, which wasn't unusual, but unusual. But then he heard his name being called out. He said he used to go by Benny, and he heard Benny, Benny. And that kind of gave him the chills. He looked around, and there were woods behind the houses there, but he saw nothing. He ran back into his house and felt that it was weird, but it was only the precursor to something even stranger. Now, it sounds like him and his cousin were pretty mischievous. He said that they used to throw rocks at vehicles and, and then run down the alley and hide. Um, so anyway, uh, so he said one night when they were doing that, they were sitting outside and his cousin had like a toy airplane that he was throwing around and he ended up throwing it into the, uh, into the tree that was there. And it was about 2 a.m. in the morning. And he was looking at trying to find a way to get it down. So the, the tree shook, and the plane fell down, and he bent down to grab it. And then as soon as he bent down, this big old bird-like figure came out, shook its head, and turned towards both of them. Now, as soon as this happened, our uh, caller, Ben, hightailed it into the house. He said he was looking out the window, yelling at his cousin, saying, come on, come on. And so his cousin came into the house. He said, as he waited inside throughout the night, this figure stayed perched on the fence for about an hour, just staring into the house. He says it was big. He said, I would say it was probably about four or five feet tall. They say Lechusa has a distinct whistle, and he says, to this day, I'll be walking or sitting outside, and I'll get this sensation that something is there, and I'll hear a whistle. He said, there are woods behind my house, so it is really creepy. Of course, I don't wait around to see what it is. I just go and head back to the house. He said, if someone says that I just saw, I saw a big bird, I'd tell them, I know what I saw. I'm not one to imagine things. I've had lots of paranormal experiences. And he said, I'm pretty sure when I'm seeing something and when I'm not. I say, you don't know when you, until you experience this. There's just so many unexplained out, the things out in the world today. I just can't fathom that none of them are real. So... Who knows? Maybe he saw Lechusa. But can you imagine being in a house and having a four or five tall, foot tall bird like waiting for you to come out so it could do God knows what? I bet he never threw rocks at cars ever again. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> yeah, what it made me think is uh, you hear a reoccurring appearance of uh, bird human-like creatures throughout all the mythos of the world, especially... Um, Japanese mythology with the mm -hmm. Tengu. Yeah, and then you get into things like Mothman. And, um, and, and again, the, just this, this speaks to a theme that we talked about earlier, this whole idea of the collective unconscious, and that we're all tapping into the same kinds of things uh, across uh, cultures and societies. Mm -hmm. You have a story in here that I think is a little similar 
um, to the one that you just gave, and that's uh, knock three times. Knock three times, yes. Yeah, that is kind of a weird one, isn't it? I'm just uh, looking here and uh, flipping through my iPad here and see. There it is. That's why I love uh, this. It's such an easy way to do do these right. interviews other than the way you used to. Have to I remember my first book, I'm trying to furiously go through the pages. Well, this is kind of weird, yeah. Um, this happened to a woman. She said this happened the year she graduated high school, and they lived out in the rural uh, country of Oklahoma. Um, and... They were. This wasn't like city kids coming to the country. They were used to all sorts of things outside, nights, uh, owls, the wind, birds, whatever it was. She said uh, her bedroom was in the corner of their house, and during this one peculiar summer, there were a series of knocks on her, uh, her window that occurred on multiple nights. And she said this happened quite a few times and built up to one really strange evening when everything culminated. She said the first time I heard it was after I went to bed one night. I had my closet light on so I could read. After I was done with the book, I got up, I turned my light off, and laid back down in bed to go to sleep. And when I did, I heard knocking. It was a series of three knocks repeated three times. He said, she said, I basically convinced myself that it was nothing. It was my overactive imagination from watching too many or reading too many scary stories. So she heard it uh, a couple of nights later, and she decided at that point to look out the window, but there was absolutely nothing there. By the third time it happened, she was starting to get a little concerned, thinking, hmm, what's going on here? Now, that summer, her and her sister were actually switching bedrooms. She was going off to college, and she wasn't going to have that corner bedroom anymore. She'd not told anybody about what was going on. She said it ratcheted up a notch when her sister, Shelly, and her were going to bed another evening. She was in the middle bedroom. Uh, our caller was in the middle bedroom, and Shelly was in the corner bedroom. Her mom, her dad, and little brother were asleep. And they were just talking back and forth. And then Shelly asked her sister, Shanna, that's our caller's name, did you just knock on the wall? And she said, no. She said, then something's knocking on my window. At that point, she told her the story of what had been happening. They went to their dad, and he said that her dad's kind of salt of the earth, a practical country boy. And he said, uh, did you turn on the security light? He said, he, he said, and they said, no. And he said, well, go turn it on. He said, did you see anything? He said, no. He said, well, then go back to bed. There's nothing there. But then this happens. He said, the last time I heard it, it impacted our entire family. It's become sort of one of those stories where you sit around and say, we have no idea what this was. Here's how it ended. The last night they heard it, her oldest sister, Chris, was in grad school had come home. And uh, Shauna, our caller, and Chris were in the middle bedroom. Shelly in the corner bedroom. Mom and dad were asleep as was our little brother. After hearing about the knocking, Chris, this older daughter, had made merciless fun of the two younger girls. She said she thought we were being overreacting drama queens. So this night they were both in the middle bedroom and they sat straight upright in bed and they said, I hear something knocking. And they could hear it knocking on the kitchen window. This knocking started getting louder. It knocked in succession. There were four windows across the front of the house, the kitchen, the dining room, and then the two bedroom windows, and it was literally knock, 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 knock. It was like knock, 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 a series of three knocks. And it would repeat. And they said they were very quite terrified. The entire family was awake by that time. Her dad was pretty upset. When the oldest daughter, the rational scientist, Chris, got upset, then dad did too. It was just consistent and constant across the front of the house. It did not let up, just constant knocking. So the dad of the family, being a rural family, a country family, they got each of the girls a gun. 
And she said they were all country girls and they could shoot. And he posted each one of us at the entrance of the house and he literally turned to us and told us he was going out. He said, don't let anything in. If you see me running, let me in, but don't let anything else in. <laughs> uh, literally, as soon as Dad opened the front door, it stopped. It was as quiet as a country night could be, absolutely quiet. Dad went outside. It felt like an eternity before he came back, but when he did, he was totally perplexed. And I said, I have no, he said, I have no idea. Now, this gentleman, the father of the family, is a country boy. He was a hunter. Uh, he looked on top of the house. He went down the road. There were no tracks. There was nothing. Their dogs were not roused. The chickens never squawked, and there was nothing. And uh, he knew, and they knew, that at that point they'd been experiencing something all summer long. So she, she mentions that she read a book uh, by Whitley Strieber. She thinks it was Communion. And that he had had an experience out in the rural area with his home, and it involved a series of three knocks. And it was an association with something like an alien abduction situation. Um, she's not aware of any missing time, and they just don't really know what caused it. But they know that it was there and that it was real. Jim, have going along with that, like the alien abduction scenario, um, in any of your stories that people have told you, has anyone ever mentioned owls? I'm trying to think, because there's a lot of... Um, right. There's a lot of stories. I can tell you that there was a story that involved uh, my mom and dad years ago uh, when I was just a small child that envisioned seeing large birds. So owls, there may have been, I just may not be remembering it, but I'm certainly aware that they're considered to be pretty mystical creatures. Owls come out up a lot in our show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see why. I mean, yeah. they, they have that rotation of the head, the, the wise owl, and they, there's something about them that has a mystique that's almost otherworldly. Absolutely. They're just so, so mysterious. Uh I wanted to talk about, in the time that we have, an interesting story that uh, a lady had told you. Um, I'm not sure if it is in, it may be in your first book, but uh, it's the story about the bar and the painting. Oh, the roadhouse. This is an incredible story. Well, actually, I have my notes on that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad that I do, because it's not in the book. It's actually probably going to be in the third book. But this was from uh, a listener. Her name's T.I. She's up from Michigan. And this was actually when she was visiting Wisconsin. And uh, I guess you would call it the uh, Roadhouse Saloon is the name of the story. And it certainly will be in the third book. So anyway, her and a male friend were out listening to a band. And this was out in the rural area. Uh, So it was about 2.30 in the morning. 2, 2.30 in the morning they left because they were, you know, shutting down for the night. And they were uh, traveling back home in this rural area, very dark and overcast. And the call of nature (laughs) visited this woman. She had to go to the restroom, but there was no place to go to the restroom. So she thought, well, I'll just, I'm certainly not going to go in the woods. I'll just tough it out and, you know, suffer for the hour and a half back home. All of a sudden, like an oasis, there's this old roadhouse at the side of the road. And it's bathed in neon with a bunch of old neon beer signs. There's a few beater cars in the parking lot, and it's hopping. Looks like it's uh, open. They think, well, that's weird. It's after 2 a.m. in the morning, but we're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. 
let's go in and uh, check it out and and do what we got to do. Maybe get a drink or two. So anyway, they go in. Uh, she goes to the restroom. Her friend gets a, a couple of drinks from the bar. And it's just, you know, a really weird place. Uh, they they walk in. The bartender's kind of standing there looking at him, grinning, like really in a kind of silly way. A man comes up to them and gives them a high five as they come in. And when they return the high five, he like smiles and his teeth are all rotten. But anyway, she went to the restaurant and got a beer. And uh, they were talking, and her friend said, you know, I'm kind of excited because there's this uh, big mural here on the wall, and a lot of people from town talk about this. There was supposedly a traveling artist who came and painted it. It's kind of an old West motif. And uh, so they started looking at that. And in the meantime, uh, there was the brown teeth guy. (laughs) And he went over and put a quarter in the jukebox, which was one of those great old 45 Wurlitzer-type, old-fashioned uh, jukeboxes. And they were playing uh, Chubby Checkers, Let's Twist Again. <laughs> so uh, they were uh, certainly twisting away. And the man came over to uh, the woman from our story and asked her if she wanted to dance. And she had a cane. And remember that because that comes into the story in a minute. And she said, no, no, I, I can't dance. I have a cane. She probably wouldn't want to dance with him anyway, she said. But uh, she kind of begged off that way. So they start looking at this mural, and they notice that everything that is represented in the room is in the mural. Now, the mural is in an Old West motif. But, for example, the bartender standing in the same position. There's the same amount of people in the same chairs in the bar and the saloon. There's a table with some guys playing cards, and there's a couple people. All of it mimics real life. And they actually go up to the bartender and they say, hey, what, you know, did you guys pose for this? I mean, you're all in it and it's all the same. And he just kind of gives them a blank stare and smiles at them eerily. So anyway, (laughs) uh, they can't figure out what's going on and they start looking at it really close again. And they notice there's some, you know, those old fashioned swinging doors that they're in all the Western movies and they're there. And there are two figures walking in the door, but they're not really clear. It's almost like the old-fashioned Polaroid picture where they're actually developing into the picture. And one is a man who fits exactly the description of our caller's friend. And there's a woman there with a skirt and a cane, which matches our caller. At that point, they say, maybe it's time that we get out of here. And as they start to go to the door, everybody in the bar stands up. And they thought, oh, my God, are these people not going to last up? So they get, they, they walk out the door. They slam the door. As they slam the door, everything in the bar goes dead. Like it was never opened. All the neon signs go off, everything. Just like you would walk up to an abandoned building, okay? They get in their car. They leave. As they're pulling out of the parking lot, they realize all of the other cars are gone. So that's spooky enough. So a few days later, our caller decides, well, I'm going to see what's going on. She gets another friend. They go back. They go out, you know, like 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening. They certainly want to go in the middle of the night. They walk in, and they talk to the bartender who there is a woman and said, oh, you know, we came in here the other night, Sunday at 10, you know, at 2.30 in the morning. And she says, we close at 10.30 on Sundays. And, well, I was in here, and there was this big strapping bartender, like, smiled a lot. Uh, young guy. Um, well, we don't have anybody like that. I'm the one bartender. My dad is the other. 
<laughs> and then they look over, and there's a jukebox there, sure enough. But remember that old one that played the old 45 records? Yeah. It, it was a modern-day jukebox with CDs. Right. So that's the story. And that's, that, to me, is that's worthy of a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Well, wow. it really is. <laughs> I mean, if, that, if that really, you know, and I'm not doubting the caller, but if that really happened... They had to have slipped into some alternate reality or some type of time warp or, or something. That's the only thing that I can think to explain it. Well, there's a story also, too, that you have, Jim, called uh, Would You Like Fries With Your Time Travel? <laughs> oh, this is cool. And again, this is another thing I love about the show because it's not, you know, as much as I love our country, uh, I like to hear from folks in other parts of the world. And this one is actually from Britain, from England. So, um... This happened on a bright, sunny Saturday afternoon. Now, this particular day, our caller had gone into town with her mother. She was a child. And uh, this was when they had just first opened a McDonald's uh, in her town over there. And everybody was excited about it. And she said, please, can I go over there and get a strawberry milkshake? And she said she had a fascination with, with him. She thought it was the best thing ever. And she said, after a little bit of persuasion, her mom said, all right, then, go ahead, cross the road. And she said, it was just across the road, and she could see it from the bus stop. And she said, hurry up, because we're going to miss the bus, and I don't want to have to wait another half an hour. So she ran off to the McDonald's, got her milkshake, came out of the McDonald's, and stepped into the road. She said she was playing around with the lid on her cup and trying to get the straw through the little hole on the top. Now, get this. Out of nowhere, in the middle of the road, she bumped into a man. Now, first... She thought, well, I've not watched what I'm doing, you know. I wasn't paying attention. She stood back and looked up, but this man that she had bumped into wasn't there before. He appeared out of thin air. And she said she hit him so hard that she actually hurt her nose. It was like walking into cold steel. She said that's all she could describe it as. She stood back and looked up at him, and she just went cold as he appeared incredibly out of place. He was an elderly gentleman, maybe in his late 60s, early 70s. He was very slim and very tall. And she says, I mean, I was only 11, but he was a lot taller than my dad was, and my dad was about six foot something. Uh, he was dressed just like a Victorian undertaker, completely in black from head to foot. He had a black frock coat, black trousers, and black gloves. She said he couldn't see what he was wearing underneath, but it looked like it was either kind of some kind of black scarf or silk cravat or something like that. It was buttoned up into the neck, but it was a really hot summer's day. So he would have stuck out like a sore thumb. She stood back and apologized and said, I'm really sorry. He didn't say anything. He just glared at her. His face was very pale. His hair was swept back off his face and sort of brill cream down, and he looked at her. He gave her a stare as if to say, what are you doing, stupid girl, getting in my way? And that sort of a look he had on his face. Now, she said, his eyes are what I can still see to this day as they were jet black. There was no color in them whatsoever. The pupil and iris went totally jet black. His stare just went straight through her. And she said, I felt absolutely terrified, cold to the bone, really. And I apologized again, and I carried on the ro across the road back to my mother. I turned around and looked over my shoulder to see, because I was sure that other people would have seen him, and there was no one there. And she got uh, across the road and asked her mom, did you see that weird man I just bumped into? She said, what man? You stumbled in the middle of the road. But I didn't see any man. Now, huh. it's weirder. The really strange thing, and she said she found out a few years later that on that street, the high street in Bowden, the main street is where there's a big church, Bowden Parish Church. 
Um, she wondered afterward whether that would have been the main road to the undertaker going to and from the church. And she later found out that not only was there the church there, but the area where this happened used to be a graveyard that belonged to another church that had been demolished. And all the graves had been relocated while they built the town center. <laughs> and she said this happened when her mom was a child and she remembers all the children being excited because they were digging up graves and moving the bodies off. She sat and worked it out and it would have been exactly in this area of where the graves were that she saw this man. She says she's interested about the idea of parallel universes and when she hears people talking of them, it reminded her of meeting this gentleman. She wonders um, if she was in some kind of time loop. And it seemed like he was just as shocked to see her as she was shocked to see him. That's the impression she got, and it was very strange. It's strange that his eyes were also jet black, and that reminds me of the Black Eyed Kid stories, Uh, too. You know, and that's something I'd like to get more Black Eyed Kid stories, because that is so weird, because I think it juxtaposes, you know, the most innocent of us, the children... You know, who we assume won't harm a fly, but then there's these some children who insist, let me in, let me in your house, let me in your car. Uh, almost like they're going to steal your soul or something if they, they get in. Um, and that's something, anytime we have a show on that, people are just fascinated by it. That's yeah. a really, really spooky topic. Yeah, we had David Weatherly on. Oh, yeah, uh, he's great. In yeah, fact, I'm going to see uh, Paradigm Symposium. He's speaking. And I'm yeah. hoping, I'm hoping... Um, now I should say people can get all my free podcasts, jimherald.com, but I'm hoping, um, well, I, I, I hope to, let's put it this way. I hope to do more work with him in the future. Cool. Absolutely. He's, he's an interesting guy. We need to have him back on our show as well. Um, uh, Jim, we, with the time that we have left, uh, we had talked a little bit, uh, before we started about, uh, JFK, you know, being the 50th anniversary and you are interested in conspiracy, um, uh, theory as well just as we are what's kind of your take on the whole jfk 50 years later well i gotta tell you and i just read a fascinating book uh by i believe bryce zabel uh and i can't recall the title but the gist of it is uh what if jfk lived and talked about the alternate history if he had lived and so forth i just believe that without question that there was some conspiracy was lee harvey oswald involved in it very very likely but maybe he was a decoy. Uh, but I believe there were other shooters. I just think there's too much going on. I think that people high up in the government knew. And I would not be surprised if LBJ knew. I'm not saying he was an active participant. But yeah. I believe people knew who was behind it. They wanted to, The Warren Commission wanted to hush it up and get on with the nation's business. And I just, I mean, to me it's as simple as this. You know, Sharpshooters have tried to take that same model rifle and repeat what was done, and it can't be done. So how could uh, Lee Harvey Oswald do it? I mean, that right there, along with all the other things, and there's another great book, if you haven't read it, maybe you have, by, of all people, Richard Belzer. And also, uh, as a co-author, I can't recall, it, David Wayne, I think it might be. It's called Hit List. And it goes over, I think it might be a hundred different people. In fact, I tried to get Belzer on the show and couldn't. My Conspiracy Corner show for my Plus Club. I couldn't get him on the show, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop trying. But he went through quite a few people. I can't remember if it was a hundred or it was a high number of people. The people who were somehow tied to the JFK assassination. Maybe they were a witness. Maybe they knew somebody who knew somebody. And all these people were 
you know, called to testify or a lot of these people were going to testify for different things. And they all managed to like die under mysterious uh, circumstances. It might be a car crash. It might be a quote suicide. It might be, but all of these people just within a short three or four years, even Jack Ruby, who claimed that somebody gave him cancer, shot him full of cancer. Um, to me, you know, there is something to say about the old thing about where there's smoke, there's fire. Now, I don't believe everything is a conspiracy. I don't believe that, uh, you know, every single thing that the government tells us is a lie. And I think there's a good sampling of lies in there, but <laughs> sometimes yeah. I believe they tell the truth. But with JFK, I just, I just don't see it. I don't see how you can look at and, and read the evidence and come away with anything other than, it's a conspiracy. Now, there's so many people it could have been. Uh, it could have been the Cuban exile community. It could have been the mob. Uh, some people say it's a military-industrial complex. Some people say it was Castro's Cubans because they had tried to assassinate Cuba. I mean Cuba, excuse me, Castro. Castro some people yeah. will say, some people said it was the Soviets. Some people say it was LBJ himself. So, I mean, I don't think you'll ever be able to tease out those strands, particularly since the major players are dead and anybody left is going to be dead real soon here because we're talking about 50 years. I mean, long time. Yeah. I mean, right now somebody 20 years old at the time is now 70. So, you know, time marches on and we lose those people. So uh, my money on ever figuring out, I don't know. But uh, for me, I don't think there's any doubt. And I believe even the, the house uh, committee on uh, assassinations that there was a likely conspiracy. So I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why there's still people who uh, stick with, in my opinion, the lone nut theory because I just don't think it holds water. I think it's mostly that people feel comfortable with it to explain. Well, really, I think if you look at that day in history, that's the pivot point of history for the United States. In other words. Uh, I think the United States in general felt pretty good about itself. Uh, it was a pretty strong country in the eyes of the world. Certainly, there were a lot of problems. There was the uh, civil rights problem, which certainly wasn't fixed uh, and, and had a long, long way to go. Um, there were certainly problems. But I think that the country had a good feeling about itself. And I think positive thinking and, and, and those kind of things can go a long way. And I think that started us down the road where... Maybe people don't feel as good about their country today. I think some of that are the seeds of that because I think people sense that they weren't told the truth about it. And then you get into Vietnam, and Watergate, and so forth and so on. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, that, that day, uh, regardless of if you thought that Kennedy was a great president or not, I think that day scarred our country. I don't know that we've ever recovered from it. Right. Right. Absolutely. I agree. I think I have questions about 9/11 too, but uh, I think that's another day that uh, is is also pivotal, making everybody just feel doubt. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's say that, and again, I, I tend to stick with what the government said on 9/11, although there's certainly been some interesting questions. But if your government's lied to you once about a major happening like the Kennedy assassination, even if they're telling the truth for something like 9/11, it makes you wonder. Yeah, it does. It really does. Well, Jim, uh, was there anything you wanted to ask, Luke? Nah, I don't think so. Okay. 
Well, Jim, tell everybody uh, before we go uh, where they can get your book and uh, where they can contact you and uh, sure. see all your podcasts. Be glad to do that. Well, first of all, we read quite a few stories there, but there are 70 stories in the book, so don't think that you heard everything. There's quite a bit that we didn't even touch on. Uh, 70 Spooky Stories to Keep You Up at Night is the subtitle. True Ghost Stories, Jim Harold's Campfire 2. Uh, the easiest way to get to it, I've created a special URL that will redirect you right to the Amazon page. It's jimheraldbooks.com, J-I-M-H-A-R-O-L-D, books with an S, dot com. Uh, you can certainly search Amazon for it if you want to go through that way. And it's available in Kindle for $2.99. And the cool thing about that is you don't have to have a Kindle to read it. They've got a ton of free apps for about every smartphone out there for your computer, PC, Mac, whatever it might be. If you're listening to this show, you can read a Kindle book. And two ninety nine, I think, is a really good price. And then it's also available for those who uh, prefer kind of the old school books. Uh, it's also available in paperback. So that's it for the book. I hope you pick up on it. It is currently the number one supernatural bestseller on the Kindle. So we're very excited about that. Uh, the uh, podcasts, there are two free podcasts. You get, get the last 90 days of content absolutely free. Anytime you go over to jimherald.com, J-I-M-H-A-R-O-L-D.com. You can also pick it up on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and on the Roku. And uh, we'd love for you to tune in and take a listen and gentlemen i thank you both it's been a lot of fun thank you so much yeah. i can't recommend your podcast and your books more uh jim stay on the line we're gonna we're going to uh, close out this section and we'll be right back on conspiracy roll is Reed Lucas. This is NPR. And we're sitting down with the man himself, the picker and the grinner, Mr. Reed Lucas. How you doing, Mr. Reed? I can't talk right now. <laughs> <laughs> alright, 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 alright. That's it. It's over, over, over. Stop, stop. <laughs> I'm getting into it, man. <laughs> getting into the country. <laughs> oh, man. That's a real life slapper. True. <laughs> that was uh, an amazing interview, man. Uh, just it was really awesome to sit back and hear some stories. Uh, some of it went into stuff that we've been talking about, uh, and personal experiences that you and I both had. Yeah, that's really that's great, man. That was that was great. Uh, I like that he talked about the mass collective conscious in some yeah. of those stories, and which seems to be so much the case. And, and there's there's so there's so many um, variables that affect when people have experiences, you know. Right. There's so many variables that you have to think about. Well, you know, such as, um, you know, the, the chair, the furniture. I mean, that was interesting. The the one that had like this weird stuff going on with the furniture where there's ghosts coming out mm -hmm. of the furniture and they bought the whole thing as a set right and the other chair was perfectly fine no problem right yeah and you know, that must what, have been the what's one up in, with that in the corner of the house that it used to be in that nobody sat in or anything kind of like the yeah. guest chair but you know when i heard that story it, it took me directly to my mom's story and i always kind of you know i've been uh, when i was younger i just dismissed it i was ah whatever my mom's my mom's fruity <laughs> <laughs> no comment <laughs> 
That's dark and bad. Does she listen to this show? I hope not. Your own son no. called her fruity. No, she does. She doesn't listen to it at all. Okay. She'd but, be like, "What? How do I get to that? I don't even know." No, no, I, I love my mom though. I, I can <laughs> my call mother's her. like, "What is that? Like email or something?" I, I can call her. I can call her fruity. I'm allowed to. It's like, "Oh, you're right, Luke." <laughs> she'll, she'll get a little mad, but she'll get over it. <laughs> right. But but uh, it took me back. She used to live in Hawaii because uh, my grandpa traveled. And he was in the military. Right. And uh, was he? Yeah, he was in Vietnam, and then he traveled after that to Turkey and different places. And they moved to Hawaii. He was. He, I think he was at Pearl Harbor. And um, she's. They were living in a house, and they said that one piece of furniture kept moving every night. Hmm. They would. Uh, they heard some moving around and stuff in the living room, but just didn't want to get up out of bed to go check it out. Just dismissed it. And I know there's just some noise outside or something. Right. And then they'd get up in the morning, and, and one piece of furniture, I think it was a chair, kept moving. And um, and this happened maybe just once a week. It wasn't like an everyday thing. It was just one, you know, like once a week, once every two weeks or something like that, just at random. And um, that kept happening. And then one day. Uh, she said, because she was just a little girl at the time too, and she said that she heard like a lot of commotion in the living room, and she mm-hmm. was she got scared. She didn't want to go look at it because she had been seeing uh, beings and stuff, you know, uh, uh, apparitions out there too. She didn't. She was scared. She didn't want to go see what was going on in the living room, and yeah. and grandma and grandpa didn't even wake up. Uh, so the next morning, the furniture, all the furniture was arranged, rearranged, not just Weird. the chair. But and it was in odd locations in the room too, like one, one like the couch was up against the door, you know, and the chair off in the corner, like a, a completely opposite of the room. There, there's no explanation for that. I mean, that nobody would come in and just rearrange furniture. Right, in the middle of the night. Right. And not steal anything. Yeah. So I mean, how did that resolve? Did they just eventually uh, um, just move out of the house? No, no. He just, he stayed there for the rest of um, his deployment, and it, she said it never happened again after that. Hmm. It it uh, the that last time, whenever their furniture was at complete random places across the the living room, it never happened again. It's weird somehow like that. Like things build up to a point, like the energy builds up, and then eventually. It's like almost like an explosion, and then it stops. Yeah, and it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then it slowly builds up again. Yeah, and uh, I definitely think that there's a lot of substance to what he was talking about, and in, in my studies of the occult too. Um, whenever an object collects the energy from its possessor, because I I know that there's a few items that I have yeah. that that I would you know run into a burning house to save. Right. That, are, that are so close to me. And I think that... Stack of nudie mags. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got it. <laughs> it's, two, it's 2013, man. We're a little past the magazine. Oh, that's true. That's the... <laughs> I got a smartphone. <laughs> uh, get a little too personal here. Yeah, anyway. Well, <laughs> you know, um, it's interesting to me that a lot of people, just in this country have so many stories of so many strange things that happen to them that they can't explain. You know, I have my stories. You, I mean, you have a story. Just everybody has, I think most people have a story mm-hmm. that yeah. they just cannot explain. Yeah. And I think what Jim has done is like really kind of a great like public service in a way because he's 
bringing people in. To, yeah. and you, what I love, okay, is these personal stories. Personal stories. Mm -hmm. Okay? And you make fun of me, but I've, I've watched celebrity ghost stories, you know. I like that show because it's not like, you don't get like that um, 20 minutes of somebody searching around in a, like, a, what the, the spectral vision or the night vision goggle. Like, oh, did you hear that? Well, well that was a bug. They're, they're just what telling, was that? Yeah, they're just telling what was stories. That, you know? Yeah. And you don't get that whole it's, investigation it's thing, which is just, just bores me to tears. Uh -huh. Bores me to tears. Yeah. I can't even watch that stuff anymore. But if you're talking about personal experiences, I'm interested. Mm -hmm. Because that, I think, is more important. Because I don't think, scientifically, we're ever going to prove any of this stuff. But if someone sees it, experiences it, that's real. Mm -hmm. That's real to that person. True. And, and another great thing is uh, he's a preserver. Yeah. Because uh, tales like that just handed down word of mouth just get lost in time when people pass. Right. He's an archivist yes. in a way. You know, he's yeah, putting yeah. he's putting this putting it up on the internet, people can listen to it. Right. But would you like to know a mid September warning for all Christians in the USA? Well let me go use the restroom first. You can go ahead and get started on it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well I can still hear you. Mid September for everybody. Well, Luke goes to use the restroom. Thank you for announcing that. This is also from Pamela Ray Schufert. Mid-September warning for all Christians USA. Mid-September marks the beginning of Satanist stalking of victims for Halloween human sacrifice. Here are practical protective measures to take to protect yourself and your loved ones from Satanist hunters and huntresses prowling the neighborhoods of America as they hunt for victims for human sacrifice for Halloween this year. They traditionally begin six weeks in advance of Halloween or Samhain. Do not go hiking alone in desolate or wilderness regions of America. Use the buddy system when camping or hiking in wilderness regions or isolated hiking trails. Take preventative measures. Be armed if possible with a firearm, handgun, and bear spray. Try to obtain a satellite cell phone to maintain communications whenever possible. Not bad. How, no matter how pretty autumn may be, don't go hiking alone. Former Satanists submitted to me they had trained abduction teams, planted even in national forests and along well-known hiking trails. We got more victims that way, one former Satanist admitted. Do not allow your children to walk home in the dark unattended or to play unattended in parks or playgrounds. Do not leave children unattended in malls or shopping locations. Do not leave infants in carriers or strollers unattended or one watch even momentarily. Watch your children. I don't think that's bad advice. Right. Never hitchhike. The people who pick you up could be Satanists looking for one more victim. Do not jog on lone country roads or isolated regions. All it takes is 30 seconds for a Satanist abduction van to pull up alongside the victim. They're trained abduction teams to jump out and seize the hiker, jogger, hitchhiker and drag the victim into the van. Inject victim with a knockout drug, duct tape hands and feet and mouth, and haul the hapless victim to the location of the ritual to be held. Beware of vans with blacked out windows on the sides and back in which you cannot see beyond the driver and passenger seats. In the back may be their trained abduction team ready to seize their next victim. Beware of suspicious fans slowly driving down residential areas, especially in the dark and late at night, as if watching for people walking down the sidewalk. 
It could be the NSA. Beware of strange vans in your neighborhood and following people, children. Rental trucks and camper vehicles can also be used for such purposes as well. Satanist tactics and also include slipping knockout drugs into drinks at foods or food at parties. And when targeted victim passes out, they then assist the person home and haul them away instead to the place to be held for human sacrifice. Former Satanists I have interviewed admitted to me that stalking victims for human sacrifice on Halloween 30, 31st, and November 1st begins mid-September. So we're way past the point, folks, so watch out for those Satanist abduction vans. This means six weeks of Satanist prowlers and vans filled with abduction teams stalking victims in earnest all across our nation. Always remember that Jesus Christ was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. I encourage all Christian readers to enter into powerful spiritual warfare and tear down Satan's strategy for abduction and human sacrifice as this Halloween season and time of spiritual darkness nears. So watch out for Satanist abduction vans, people. They're out there. They're coming. It's weird that you like those stories so much. <laughs> uh, it's uh, just paranoia, man. It's just it's just bizarre stuff. You know, um, I, I could even I could see this being a realistic fear back in the '60s and '70s, because people could still get away with killing somebody fairly easily because no forensic teams and things like that, but. And, uh, you know, I've also heard rumors of uh, drinking blood giving you, like, a euphoric feeling. Yeah. As, as well as eating the pineal gland if you cut it out of the brain. What in the world have you been reading? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> On that note. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, you know. You got your Satanist abduction van parked somewhere? I, I don't want to go to jail for a lifetime, so I'm never going to try it. But. <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about anybody going to jail. Um, yeah. Not even going to mention it. Uh, everybody, want to thank you for for listening tonight. Uh, we'll thank Jim Harrell for coming on. Thank you, Luke, for being here. You're welcome. And uh, we're going to try to have a show here sometime between now and Halloween. I'm not quite sure when. And uh, if not, it's just be me and Luke talking. So, everybody have a good night. And we'll thank everybody for listening to Conspiranormal. Peace. Peace out, brother. Sometimes I try to do things. It just doesn't work out the way I want it to. And I get real frustrated. And like, I try hard to do it. And I take my time. And it just doesn't work out the way I want it to. It's like I concentrate on real hard. It just doesn't work out, and everything I do and everything I try, it never turns out. It's like, I need time to figure these things out. There's always someone there going, hey Mike, you know, we've been noticing you've been having a lot of problems lately, you know? Maybe get away, and like, maybe you should talk about it, you'll feel a lot better. I go, no, it's okay, you know, I'll figure it out. Just leave me alone, I'll figure it out, you know? I'm just working on myself. They go, well, you know, if you want to talk about it, I'll be here, you know, and you'll probably feel a lot better if you talk about it. So why don't you talk about it? I go, no, I don't want to. I'm okay. I'll figure it out myself. And they just keep bugging me. They just keep bugging me. They build on the side. It's got me. It's just I'm afraid of one night. You will have it. Man, I'm afraid of one night. I'm not dreaming. Here's the design. You're the one who's dreaming. Here's the design. You're driving me crazy. I'm the enemy myself.
was in my room and I was just like staring at the wall thinking about everything, saying, yeah, I was thinking about nothing. And then my mom came in and I didn't even know she was there. She called my name and I didn't hear her. And then she started screaming, Mike, Mike. And I go, what? What's the matter? She goes, what's the matter with you? I go, there's nothing wrong, Mom. She goes, don't tell me that. You're on drugs. I go, no, Mom, I'm not on drugs. I'm okay. I'm just thinking, you know. Why don't you give me a Pepsi? She goes, no, you're on drugs. I go, Mom, I'm okay. I'm just thinking. She goes, no, you're not thinking. You're on drugs. Normal people don't act that way. I go, Mom, just give me a Pepsi, please. All I want is a Pepsi. And she wouldn't give it to me. All I wanted was a Pepsi. Just one Pepsi. And she wouldn't give it to me. Just a Pepsi. in my room. My mom and my dad came in. They pulled up the chair and they sat down. They go, Mike, we need to talk to you. I go, okay, what's the matter? They go, me and your mom, we noticed lately you've been having a lot of problems. And you've been going off for no reason. And we're afraid you're going to hurt somebody. And we're afraid you're going to hurt yourself. So we decided that it would be in your best interest if we put you somewhere where you can get the help that you need. And I go, wait, what are you talking about? We decided... My best interest? How do you know what my best interest is? How can you say what my best interest is? What are you trying to say? I'm crazy. When I went to your school, I went to your churches, I went to your institutional learning facilities. So how can you say I'm crazy? Say you're the big one, right? Leave me something in my face. Why can't I think I had better lady? I'll be dead. I'm not crazy. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money. 